Thank you, Brother Tony. There's a little difference in both of us since the first time I saw you a few years ago. I'd say uh, the brotherhood has been good to us, wouldn't you? And I remember with great fondness the opportunities we had and the privilege we had of working with the fine people of this congregation those many years. And I miss those who were here to start with who aren't now. And I rejoice to see their families continue faithful in this work here. And I rejoice to uh, see new people that I've known uh, through the years that are now in the Lord's Church. And, of course, uh, I'm happy as, and thankful that uh, so many of you that I never have known until this period are here as my brothers and sisters in Christ. Thanks to the elders for the invitation to be here and for the privilege we have in our work in the kingdom of God. I appreciate the fact that you invited Chad to preach for you. Chad was um, nine years old when we left McMinnville, and uh, now he's uh, older than that. As a matter of fact, he'll be, 40, he'll be 43, I think, this year, and he's doing a tremendous work down in Mississippi where he's been. He's in his 14th year with that church. And so I'm thankful for him. And, of course, our daughter, Connie, is married to a gospel preacher, and he, he has preached for some 12 to 14 years at uh, the Mount Gilead Church in Tompkinsville, Kentucky, a congregation of around 300 people, 250 to 300. Uh, and I'm proud of my son and uh, my son-in-law, proud in a good sense, Actually, I should use the word I'm thankful for them, that they and their families are faithful to God and doing the work of the kingdom. That's the greatest blessing of my life, to have these men carry on the work of the kingdom. And I'm thankful that I've had the privilege of working at the Bible College for these years. I started working on a part-time basis in 1980. And then when we moved from here in 85, we went there and have been there ever since. And I still enjoy it. Lots of things change in education. It was in those days, in the first uh, several years, the first 15 years at least, or 20, <clears throat> that you got to see all your students in class every day. You could teach them. Now, uh, most of our work is done online in the college uh, work. And I don't like that. I like to look at my students when I'm trying to teach them. But that's not the way they like it anymore. They like to stay home or do whatever they do gives us an opportunities of teaching the gospel all over the world and uh, yet at the same time the intimate relationship of student to teacher is not there in some cases. But anyway, we're doing the best we can and are thankful for your prayers and your continuing support. There are two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of God, the church, the spiritual kingdom, which is invisible from the standpoint of material kingdoms. And then there is the kingdom of the world itself. The kingdom of the world is made up of the different kingdoms or nations of the world. When Jesus was being tempted, you remember Satan took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. He said, I'll give these to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And that says something that you need to recognize. The devil owns the material kingdoms of the world. 
He's the one who operates in the majority of cases in the lives of people. The kingdom of Christ is different. There's always been the idea in the kingdoms of men for individuals to try to climb to a great position and to be greater than other people are. When you think about the kingdoms of the world, you think about maybe the dictator who directs every affair of his little kingdom. Or you may think about uh, the parliaments that sit and, and give laws and are always fighting for control of themselves. Or you may think about the president of our country, uh, which is said to be the highest office in the world. It isn't the highest office, but it's said to be that. And you see the turmoil that develops continually among politicians and others who seek power and position. And that's true in every situation of the world. And so when Jesus came after God's plan purpose and to set up his kingdom, while it was in the preparatory state where our text takes up today, the disciples believed that he was going to be a king. But they believed he was going to be the king of an earthly kingdom. And so they were doing all sorts of things to get themselves rallied around where they'd be in proper positions when that kingdom was set up. You see, we serve as citizens of the kingdom of God. This, the eternal kingdom is the next stage up from the kingdom of God on earth today, the church. But we're members of the kingdom of God if we're Christians. And in that kingdom, great is not the same as it is in the kingdoms of the world. We literally live and are citizens in an upside-down kingdom. The things that the world calls great, God doesn't. The things that men want to do to be great among men are of no value to God. Isn't it amazing? That you've seen people spend their lives trying their best to impress somebody with how good they were, how great they were, how exceptional they were. And then after a while those people die and you don't even remember their names the next year. Isn't that remarkable? It's observable though. You see, the fame of the world and the glory of the world passes quickly. And the memory of it fades. There is something better. Greatness in God's kingdom is not achieved by what authority you wield. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not achieved by the great amount of power you may amass for yourself. Or the status of your own existence. Greatness in the kingdom of God is achieved by service. Greatness in the kingdom of God is achieved by service. We must never forget. Now in the passage that you've read, you first see that. And there are others that we want to look at as well. I want to note a few things with you tonight that God's word says about service. In this passage of scripture, you notice that the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John, was under the same conception 
or notion that other people were. She believed that the kingdom was coming, that a kingdom was coming. But she believed that it was going to be like the other kingdoms she'd known something about, the physical kingdoms of the world. And she believed that Jesus was going to be the king. And so she wanted to ask him a special favor. I do not fault the mother for wanting her sons to be in special position. She'd be like most mothers would. She'd like to see her sons succeed. But the problem was she didn't understand what she was asking. And they didn't understand it either. She wasn't the only one that felt that way. The sons and even the disciples, the other ten apostles, they believed the same thing because later they fussed about the fact that these two sons were so presumptuous, they thought. Yet they were, mis uh, they were mistaken about what was going to happen. They didn't really know themselves. There are several passages to consider along this line. <clears throat> Concerning our need to be like something that is different than what we normally think we should be like. Shall we try to develop ourselves to be like the people of the world? Or shall we develop ourselves according to a different standard? Now here's where most everybody in the world misses it. We are to be conformed not to the world, but to the image of or the example of Christ. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29, it says, We know that all things work together for good, to them who love the Lord and to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he did also predestinate, listen, that they be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The need of being conformed to the image of Christ himself, the Son of God, is our need. You educate yourself. You educate your children. You study and you labor to be like someone that you consider great. In order to succeed in the business world, people have their ideal models of what kind of operation they're going to follow and which individuals they feel have been the best executive officers. And we spend very little time studying and modeling our lives after the life of the Son of God. And therein we fail, even we who call ourselves children of God. Just as surely as God has foreknown the class of people who will be His, that is, those who are obedient to the gospel, He has also predestined that they must be conformed and that's the voluntary action on their part. They must be conformed into the nature of the image of his son. That's God's will in the matter. How do we do that? Be conformed to the image of his son. Hold that thought for a few minutes. Now, in Matthew chapter 20 and verse 28, which you heard read a while ago, uh, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many, there's something important there. If I'm going to be conformed to the image of the Son of God, then I'm going to learn to be a servant. It will no longer be, what can you do for me? But it will be, what can I do for you? It will no longer be, what can the church benefit me? How can the people in the, in the church do things for me? 
what have I got and what am I going to get out of the church? What am I going to get out of the kingdom of Christ? But rather, what can I give as far as my service is concerned in the kingdom? Listen to Philippians chapter 2, a passage you know, but we need to look at it even more carefully. Philippians 2 verse 5. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Well, there's a thought. What does he mean? Let this attitude have this disposition of character. Who, being in the form of God, this is in his pre-existent state before he came to the earth, before he was born of woman, while he was still in, in heaven, he was in the form of God, but he didn't think that was something to be grasped, or he thought it not robbery to be equal with God, which he was before he came to earth, but made himself of no reputation. That is, he discharged the glory that he enjoyed then for something less and took upon himself the form of a servant. Oh, there's the word again. <clears throat> How did Jesus show his love for humanity, fallen humanity? He took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, what did he do? Proclaimed that he was the greatest man there ever was, which would have been true as far as his being the son of man. No, he didn't do that. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death. Did he have to die? No. He took up his life, he laid it down when he wished, but he did that, even the death of the cross. There's what our Lord did. There's the nature of his service. It wasn't something that he had to do unless we consider the fact that that was the only way that God could redeem humanity. Now in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 9 this time, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich. Now, that brings us in full circle back to our text of Matthew 20. Jesus' disciples didn't understand the nature of servanthood. Um, they struggled with the concept. James and John's mother didn't understand that, nor did the sons themselves. And when she asked, when you come into your kingdom, will you put one of my sons on your right hand, the other on the left? Jesus simply said, you do not know what you ask. That's a very kind way of saying you don't understand what you're saying. You don't understand the nature of the kingdom. You're missing the whole point. Then he questioned her or gave this, these questions to her sons. He said, are you able to drink the cups that I'm able to drink? Well, they were thinking, are you able to go through the same processes in setting up the kingdom, in maintenance of the kingdom, in all the difficulties? And they said, well, yes. Are you able to? Uh, be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with. They were talking about, they were thinking about uh, the problems that would occur when the kingdom was set up with all the difficulties. 
that might happen. They said, we're able. We'll drink, we'll drink the cup. They didn't know he was talking about the cup of suffering, the baptism of suffering. He said, you will indeed drink my cup. And the account of their lives shows that, that uh, they did. And you will be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. That is, you're going to suffer. But you're not, uh, you're not, you don't understand how that's going to happen yet. But to sit on my right hand, on my left, is not mine to give. So you're still asking the wrong question. But it is for those for whom it was prepared by my Father. The ten heard this exchange, it says in verse 24. They were greatly displeased with the two brothers. And yet they were wrong. Uh, they were displeased for them for the wrong reason, actually. Jesus called them to themselves and said, Look, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's what we're talking about a while ago. How do you become great if you're a member of the world itself? You have people who are submissive to you. You have people that you control. This is the way the world measures greatness. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. Now here you're going to learn a lesson. If you listen to me, the Lord says. Whoever desires to become great among you. Would that be a natural impulse? I think so. The ego of each one of us has to be held in check. Your desire of being greater than you are has good and bad qualities. A man can lift himself up by proper choices and service. If he doesn't let that go to an extreme, it can be helpful. But sometimes people miss the mark. So, if whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Great among you. Now let's pause a minute to say something else. Is it wrong for a Christian man who is in the business world to try to climb the ladder of success? Well, of course it's not wrong, as long as he is honest and fair and decent and moral in his approach. This is the way the system operates, even for a Christian. But what about being great in the sight of God? Suppose he becomes CEO of the greatest corporation in the country. Does that make him great in God's sight? Not necessarily. To be great in God's sight is to be the best servant in his kingdom. Jesus showed us that. He was the best servant in the kingdom. And he laid down his life for the whole world and their sins. And I'm supposed to be conformed to his image. So if I'm going to please God today, I must be as great a servant in the kingdom as I can be. I'll never reach the point of Jesus' example. But I strive toward that, you see. He said, whoever desires to be first among you, again, the position of preeminence, let him be your slave. And then again, our verse 28, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Do you know who the happiest people in the world are? They're the people that serve the most. And see the joy uh, out of their life work of service. Now, while all Christians are to be servants, but God has made arrangements for a special class of servants in the church or in the kingdom. 
This special class of servants are the deacons of the church. Deacons occupy a position, not necessarily a preparatory position to be an elder, but they occupy the wonderful position of being servants. And they determine to serve in that capacity because of a special love for the kingdom itself. You know the passage, but let's read it again. We should read these things often. 1 Timothy chapter 3 is the passage I refer to. 1 Timothy chapter 3 beginning in verse 8. Well, let's see. When I get there, 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Let these also first be proved, then let them use the office of deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well, purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This special office of deacons gives ample opportunity for men to work in specialized situations in the kingdom uh, with the authority of God under the eldership, of course, of the local church for the purpose of doing the work. It is a, a position of work. It's not just an honor. I have known of men who were appointed deacons who simply wore the name and never worked the work. That is not the way God intended it. Now in Jesus' day, he dealt with that kind of attitude. And as he did, he caused a lot of the people who, to whom he was speaking on those occasions to become very upset. And you know that I'm talking about things like the occasion in, in Matthew chapter 23, when he was willing to deal directly with the problems of the self-righteous, arrogant leadership of the Jewish groups in Jerusalem. Let's look at some verses, Matthew 23, verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples. <clears throat> so he's teaching a lesson to his disciples, but he's challenging the other people who were there uh, with the same message. The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Now what he meant by that was they sit in the position of authority. The scribes and Pharisees are in the position to give direction from Moses' law as to how you Jews, all of us Jews, should live. So their word coming from the law of Moses, which these people were all under then, including Jesus, must be followed. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. So it matters not who's speaking the word. If somebody speaks the truth of God's word to you, you follow God's word. Now, he may be a rascal of sorts, but if he speaks the truth, the truth stands by itself. Truth does not depend upon the spokesman. If it did, we'd all be in trouble. So when they bid you observe that, observe it. But do not ye after their works, 
for they say and do not. They did not practice what they taught or preached. If they taught the truth, people still were obligated to follow it. But you were not obligated to follow the example of these. So let's read a bit further. They bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne. Lay them on men's shoulders. Now he has to be talking there about many of the traditions, the vain traditions, that the religious leaders of that day uh, laid on the uh, lives of people, telling them how far they could walk on the Sabbath, how big a load they could carry, uh, giving all kinds of statements concerning how much they should give and why and how, how their sacrifices were to be offered and how they were to handle their estates and the, uh, the inheritance and so on. All of these things were the arbitrary decisions of these religious leaders that, that became very heavy to endure by the people of God. But it says, they make these things but will not move them with one of their fingers. So they didn't mind telling you what to do. But when it came to doing it themselves, another story. Now, why were they that way? <clears throat> All their works they do for to be seen of men. So they were using their religious position to try to elevate themselves to a glorified position in their eyes, or thinking at least. And so it says they make broad their phylacteries, uh, their decorations on their garments. And uh, enlarge the borders of their garments. Even make the borders bigger so they can write more about what they have done. So when they walk around, people will know who they are. You've seen the medals that the generals of the army wear. I think they're honorable medals if properly secured. But these guys were doing that in the, in the name of religion. And he, he said, this is what they do. They love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogue. They went to a special feast. They wanted the best room. They wanted chief seats. They wanted greetings in the market to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi, teacher, teacher. He said, your desire is not to be called master, teacher, Rabbi, for one is your master even Christ and all your brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, talking about a spiritual father. For, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be called ye masters, for one is your master, even Christ. Verse 11. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. And he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. What's the most important thing in your life in regard to your work in the kingdom? If you're a deacon in the Lord's church, do you do it because you want to do it or for glory that other men may give you? I hope it's for the former. As an individual in the kingdom of God, do you do a lot of things that nobody ever finds out about? And are you happy that you can do that? The greatest servants in the kingdom of God are often those who are never recognized on earth, never known by other people. How remarkable it is, then, that people still try to elevate themselves in other ways. 
So in a day and age when people want to be known by their works, in a day and age when people look at the kingdom of Christ and say, what's in it for me? It's refreshing to know that there are individuals who are asking like faithful deacons in the church may do, what can we do for others? How can we glorify God in that fashion? Now, if you're not a servant in the kingdom of God, tonight I encourage you to make yourself a slave of Christ. Make Christ your master. Those two words, slave and master, used in that context, are hard for worldly-minded people to receive. If I give myself over to my Lord as my Lord and master, it means that I try to imitate him and conform my life to his image. It further means that I submit myself to his example in serving others. John chapter 13, Jesus taught a great lesson to his disciples. After the supper, he girded himself with a, with a towel, got a basin of water, went around the table, and washed his disciples' feet. He didn't do it because they were dirty. He did it because this was a work of a slave of a house. The slave of the house, the servant of the house, would be responsible for accommodating guests in that fashion. They recognized Jesus at that point as their master, and here he is doing a servant's work. Jesus showed his greatness by his service. How do you make yourself a slave of Christ, and how do you make him your master? Well, by obeying the gospel. He said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He teaches us that unless we believe in him, we will perish. If, unless we repent of our sins, we will perish. Unless we confess him uh, before God, he will deny us before his Father. Unless we're baptized into him and put him on by contacting his blood and being saved from our sins, we're lost. Not going to be lost, we are. And if you're not going to be a, a servant of Christ, you're already lost and going in the wrong direction. But just because you've been baptized into Christ does not mean you're the kind of servant you need to be. That's something that's developed. God has predestined that his people who become his faithful servants eternally are those who can form their lives to the image of his son. So if you're already in the kingdom of God, but you've been trying to achieve greatness according to the fashion of the world, what do you need to do? You need to repent. Humble yourself before God and ask his forgiveness and then get down and serve as God wants us to do. Quite a contrast with the way most people are. It's been my experience to see men as preachers of the gospel who had, who had the wrong attitude about these things. They wanted to be the greatest in the kingdom. And I have observed men who were, I consider, the greatest in the kingdom, whose names were never known, written up in the papers, 
used on great lectureships and so on. Not to say that that's not a good opportunity and venue, but when individuals are more concerned with what other people think about them and their service in the kingdom than they are with what God does, there is something desperately wrong in that situation. As I close, I have words of a poem, I guess, or a statement made by Ruth Harms Calkin. I don't even know who she is. I just know what this says makes good sense. You know, Lord, how I serve you with great emotional fervor in the limelight. You know how eagerly I speak for you at a woman's club. You know how I effervesce when I promote a fellowship group. You know of my genuine enthusiasm at a Bible study. But how would I react, I wonder, if you pointed me to a basin of water and asked me to wash the calloused feet of a bent and wrinkled old woman day after day, month after month, in a room where nobody saw and nobody knew. Are you serving God in the right way to please the Almighty? If not, isn't it time you got started? We're going to sing this invitation hymn. If you need to respond for any reason, according to the gospel, we stand ready to assist you. Let's stand and sing, please.